Thousands upon thousands of kilometers traveled by horseback in search of an elusive adversary deep in the Golden Horde lands, all coming down to this one key moment. June 18, 1391, at the Kondurcha River, in what today is known as the Volga, near Samara Oblast, Russia, about 1,000 kilometers to the east of Moscow. This was the culmination of an exhaustive march through the Kazakh and Russian steppe lands that had begun six months earlier in January in Transoxiana. Trudging through terrible storms and freezing conditions, then even as spring came on, the grasslands yielding very little sustenance. Threatening starvation for Timur and his 200,000 horsemen. Only one with masterful leadership abilities would have been able to maintain the discipline amongst the unruly tribes in his ranks. Their supply lines severely overextended, hunger only being kept at bay with all his troops engaging and unifying their efforts into a great hunt to restock their supply, followed by the resumption of a different kind of hunt, a different kind of prey, and they were now ready for what lay ahead. Opposite across the field was Toktamish, the Khan of the Golden Horde, with an army roughly equal in numbers to Timur's, the one-time protege that Timur had regarded as a son and who had played a pivotal role in installing as the Khan of the White Horde. Toktamish was now a behemoth in his own right and eager to cast Timur's long shadow aside. But all that didn't matter anymore, all coming down to this one moment with both of their fates hanging in the balance. Timur initiated the battle, horns blaring, drums releasing a steady, ominous beat. Commanding the right wing under his son, Miranshah, forward, then sending his center group under his grandson, Muhammad Sultan, in reinforcement. Toktamish, an equally capable general, countered this brilliantly, concentrating a heavy attack on Timur's left wing that was under his son Omar Sheikh, left isolated. The Golden Horde managed to almost encircle Omar Sheikh's division and was seeing the best of this engagement, threatening to vanquish Timur's left, and if able, he would then be able to flank Timur's remaining forces from the rear. However, Timur was a master strategist he had calculated the risks and options and remained unshaken, firm in his resolve, unwavering and confident in the outcome. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. The focus of this podcast is on people, those defined by the term warlord. Fascinating warriors and leaders that made a huge impact in history, some with more lasting effects and others that were relatively short-lived, but certainly no less interesting. That said, when I select a particular warlord, I plan to, of course, review their lifetime and actions but also take this further by looking at 
the environmental and political conditions right before their lifetime. We'll explore their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did and how they did it. And finally, what was their legacy beyond their demise? But with the caveat that I'm going to look beyond the mainstream historical figures that everyone knows about by taking on lesser known subjects, such as the feature of this episode and part four of our continued exploration of Amir Timur, better known in the West as Tamerlane. If you haven't had the chance yet, prior to getting into this episode, you may want to begin with episodes 1 to 3 to get a more detailed understanding of all the events leading up to where we'll be starting things from here. But here's a quick summary of episode 3 to help you get up to date. Shortly after becoming the undisputed leader in Transoxiana, Amir Timur initiated an aggressive expansion campaign, bringing Khwarezm to its knees, followed by a successful incursion into Mogulistan. We then get introduced to Tuktamish, who arrived as a tattered refugee landing in Timur's court. That Timur took under his wing and eventually helped to install as Khan of the White Horde, just north of Timur's lands in 1378. Timur then enters into Persia and initiates a campaign of conquest in the eastern half of the Ilkhanat lands, where we also learn of some epic atrocities committed against those that dare to resist. Calculated cruelty that in some instances clearly works to scare nations to surrender. Timur enters into the Christian kingdom of Georgia, defeating it and attempts to eradicate Christianity from the region in his quest to assert his status as a leader ordained by God. With all of these efforts almost crumbling into nothingness, as his core homeland, Transoxiana, was invaded by none other than Tokhtamish, at the head of an alliance including Khwarezm and Mogulistan. When we last left things off, it was fall 1388, and the respective leaders of the Golden Horde, Khwarezm and Mogulistan, all must have been somewhat surprised that they hadn't been attacked at that point, in response to their failed attempt at conquering Transoxiana in the prior year perhaps wagering that the following spring would be when Timur would launch his response, being that spring typically coincided with the warring season. Unpredictable as ever, Timur unexpectedly decided to begin his campaign of revenge by targeting Khwarezm, the closest of Tokhtamish's allies that had rebelled against Timur's yoke. He gathered his forces and made straight for Urgench, the capital of Khwarezm. With impending doom approaching, Yusuf Sufi, who we got introduced to back in episode 3, would have undoubtedly sent word to Tokhtamish for reinforcements, but Tokhtamish was either unwilling or unable to commit any of his troops. Not even bothering to entertain terms of surrender, Timur ordered his army to storm the city, ruthlessly taking revenge on this unruly kingdom for supporting and participating in the attack on Transoxiana. And while a defense of the city was attempted, these forces were in no way any match for Timur's troops, 
who also numbered them significantly too. They not only took the city, plundered it, and killed the inhabitants, as would have been expected, but they completely annihilated Urgench. Timur ordered complete and utter destruction of the city, reducing its buildings to rubble, then adding further insult to injury, going to the extent of removing the rubble and converting the lands to fields of barley. So much that one traveling in the area would not have known that such a city had existed in that place. Unless they did some archeological digging to uncover hints of this once hub of activity. The price of rebellion had been exacted and the toll had been catastrophic. Timur returned to Samarkand for the winter, letting the soldiers that made up the bulk of his army go to their homes and rest until the spring. Shortly after settling down in a regular cadence of ruling, feasting, and drinking through the cold and dark winter months, Timur was taken by surprise to learn that Toktamish had just crossed the Sirdarya River in southern Kazakhstan and was bearing down on Transoxiana. His protege did indeed mirror him in many ways, and this surprise attack was further evidence to this. With the main part of his army dispersed for the winter, Timur's advisors advocated to retreat to a more secure territory in order to buy time to marshal their forces. Timur, however, would not hear of this, knowing that taking such an action would effectively weaken his stature and image among his territories and would have potentially swayed others to join in with Toktamish. So despite the difficult freezing and snowy conditions, he was able to cobble together a small army and commanded Omar Sheikh to lead them north, using the cover of night to make covert marches, alluding to one of the quotes that Timur was apparently fond of saying. It is better to be on hand with 10 men than absent with 10,000. This proved to be a successful tactic, as his troops were able to surprise the invading army's vanguard, pushing them back across the Sirdaria River, where the bulk of Toktamish's forces were stationed. This action, along with the terrible weather conditions, grounded the Golden Horde invasion to a halt, with some small subsequent skirmishes taking place, but really nothing definitive. But Timur was not quite ready to attempt a more decisive action against Toktamish, because doing so with a large troop count that would be required would leave his eastern border vulnerable, where the Mughals, under their new Khan, Khazir Koja, also had a sizable army at the ready. Timur realized that his defending army to the north would not be able to hold out for long, particularly once the season turned, making the conditions better suited for an attack. But war involved calculated risks. So, early in 1389, once Timur was finally able to gather the rest of his army, they boldly entered Mukulistan, daring Khazir Koja to meet him in battle. Koja accepted the challenge and met Timur in the field. In a series of battles, Timur repeatedly punished the Mogulistan forces, pushing them further and further back, greatly weakening their army in the process. But Timur was wary not to continue a prolonged pursuit, 
because he was uncertain of how long his troops in the north would be able to keep the Golden Horde at bay. And really, Tokhtamish was the only real viable threat remaining to his kingdom. So Timur offered peace, with Khazir Koja handing over heavy financial tributes to keep Timur from completing his conquest of Mogulistan. Tokhtamish, by this time, he would have been fully aware of the changing headwinds, and it was clear that his opportunity for conquest in Transoxiana had been dashed for the time being. As such, Tokhtamish retreated north back into the Golden Horde homeland to await a future opportunity to make another attempt on Transoxiana. Although part of the motivation may have in fact been more of a defensive tactic in view of the inevitable attack that would eventually be coming their way. From Timur's perspective, the path was now clear towards Tokhtamish. However, due to the vast terrain in front of them, and knowing that Tokhtamish would keep on falling back until the right opportunity presented itself, Timur knew that it would be a time-intensive effort. So in order to drive up support and build enthusiasm for this monumental undertaking, in late 1389, Timur called a kurultai, which is akin to a military meeting and celebration of sorts. This taking place near Kesh to galvanize his generals and officers to be ready for the challenge ahead. This was going to be a campaign unlike anything they had ever experienced and knowing the military might available to the Golden Horde, Timur readied an army of 200,000 horsemen and warriors. Numbers like this, and the anticipated length of time it would take to accomplish this, resulted in intense preparations through the year in 1390, ensuring that his troops were armed to the teeth, and with provisions that would keep them in field for months. By January 1391, Timur was unwilling to wait any more time and set out north, just as the winter storms began to fall overhead, to track down Tokhtamish and put this upstart down once and for all, bringing us to the story that we covered at the top end of this episode. The march was extremely slow, the terrible conditions of the steppe during the winter sapping their strength and slowing down their horses. Into April, it had been about four months of ponderously slow marching in these treacherous conditions, and they had not caught a wisp of Tokhtamish's whereabouts. Timur had scores of scouts out and about in all directions. Yet again, these searches were yielding very little information, and Timur's forces were beginning to run dangerously low on provisions, despite the earlier preparations that had been made. At one point, rations getting so low that they were reduced to one bowl of broth per day, and morale amongst the army was beginning to ebb, with no conclusion to this venture in sight. Timur was forced to take some time out from his search in order to get his army fed, as failing to do so would have resulted in a dire situation becoming even worse, with Tokhtamish's forces somewhere out there presumably more well-rested and well-fed. Timur called for a hunt, 
leveraging the vast number of his forces. He parceled them out into groups, making a massive circle several kilometers wide. Over the next couple of days, the forces arrayed in a massive circle began moving inward, closer and closer, driving all kinds of animals into the center. Deer, hares, wild boar, wolves, antelope, ultimately yielding a big influx of food. They feasted for several days, and with morale raised and larders now restocked, Timur took this opportunity to conduct a formal review of his troops. Everyone arrayed in their finest battle armor, standing before their valiant leader and promising to follow wherever he led them. From there, Timur ordered his troops northwest into Siberia, plodding ever onward into the Golden Horde territory in search of any signs of Toktamish in this never-ending grassy landscape. In late April, Muhammad Sultan, Timur's grandson and the departed Jahangir's eldest son, had led a scouting party which began to reveal some clues. Finding a desolate campsite that had recently been occupied with horse tracks leading north. They followed this path and stumbled across yet another abandoned campsite consisting of over 70 spent fires. They were close. And like bloodhounds following a scent hot on the trail, the detachment followed the clues and they landed on a small group of horsemen which they surrounded and attacked. This small group of Golden Horde warriors resisted fiercely, but were readily dispatched, with several captured and then interrogated. Armed with this new information on Toktamish's whereabouts, Timur ordered his army due west, past the Ural River and then north, through a series of aggressive marches that took almost two weeks. So why was Toktamish being so elusive? especially considering that his army was apparently at least equal strength to Timur's. As we discussed back in episode 1, and similar to the feigned retreat, unlike other cultures, for example, like the Romans, who would have considered not committing to battle like this cowardice, in Mongol culture, this was a common practice that was consistently utilized, buying time to find the right opportunity to strike. And by continuing to evade Timur and his 200,000 strong army, Toktamish knew that it would be difficult to keep feeding such a huge force in field, and that if this continued in towards fall or winter, it would not be sustainable for Timur to continue this course of action. However, this was not to be the case, because Timur's scouts had indeed followed all the clues and leads to identify the location of the Golden Horde army. And in mid-June, the stage was finally set, both Timur and Toktamish well informed of their positions and that the opposing armies were close by. On June 18th, near the banks of the Kondurcha River, known today as the Volga River, all this posturing came to an end as the two armies stood across from each other about a kilometer of distance separating these two massive armies. Timur's army had his grandson, Muhammad Sultan, leading the center, who was showing himself to be a potential worthy heir to the Timurid Empire, while his sons, 
Omar Sheikh and Miran Shah respectively commanding the left and right wings, with Timur himself leading the rear guard. Timur rode out in front of his vast army stretching kilometers wide, dismounted and kissed the ground praying for the favor of the Almighty Allah shortly followed by the tremendous war drums beating out an ominous rhythm, promising death to their enemies. Timur ordered the right wing under Mirinshah to strike the first blow, charging out against Toktamish's left. Arrow volleys from both sides filled the air, leading towards bloody hand-to-hand combat, sabers and scimitars flashing brutally cutting and cleaving through human and horse alike, essentially anything that lay in the path. However, both sides held their ground. Timur sent in reinforcements to press their attack, ordering Mohammed Sultan with the center forward to ensure that the right wing didn't get separated. In response, Toktamish unleashed his right wing to charge Timur's left, that was commanded by Omar Sheikh. Bolstered by superior numbers, the Golden Horde horsemen were able to create disorder within Timur's army by detaching Omar Sheikh and his troops from the main body, almost surrounding them completely. It was a brilliant move, considering the evolving situation and could have proved decisive for the Golden Horde to win the day. But this could have did not transpire into a definitive outcome. Why? Well, it's because of the general confusion and onset of fear that overtook the Golden Horde army. Toktamish's standard no longer visible, being that he had fled the field. Fear gripping him as Timur's center and right wings bore down and pushed back his army. Now. Had Toktamish held his position and continued to weather the storm, while his right wing continued pressing its seemingly successful attack, they may have in fact been able to attack Timur's army from the rear. However, this never came to fruition. The confusion and then disorder that followed within the Golden Horde ranks allowed Timur's disciplined army to readily gain the initiative. And while far from an easy feat, with hard fighting that continued throughout the day, this ended with a disorderly retreat and Timur's forces relentlessly pursuing and slaughtering the enemy. Now the casualties on both sides are not very clear. However, it's reported that over 100,000 soldiers died in this engagement. The gruesome battlefield draped in rivers of blood with bodies of men and horses strewn about. Despite Toktamish escaping, the losses among his army had been significant, with the remaining troops scattered to the winds. Timur's army, from commanders to the lowliest soldiers, reaping a rich haul of plunder, horses and slaves. Reveling in triumph, Timur and his army passed the rest of the summer along the banks of the Volga, feasting and hunting, before commencing their march back to Samarkand now heavily laden with plunder, arriving towards late fall. In the spring of 1392, Timur gathered his army with Western Persia, or more specifically, 
the city of Shiraz, as the intended destination. Being that, the Musafarid princes in the city of Shiraz, that Timur had previously allowed to retain their leadership as vassals to his rule, had renounced their loyalty in revolt. The first year was spent in the Mazandaran region, along the southern shores of the Caspian, re-establishing his rule over the area. And while much of that initial year was rather uneventful, with little resistance, one small coastal stronghold near the city of Amol, Iran, managed to hold out against the full strength of the Tatars, largely due to its inaccessibility, wherein Timur's strength in numbers was easily dispersed by a much smaller group. What makes this particularly interesting is that this stronghold is rumored to have been held by the followers of Hassan Sabah, who had established the Hashashin, or Order of the Assassins, approximately 300 years prior. Undeterred by their failures to storm the stronghold, but unwilling to leave this obstacle unconquered, Timur, the great cavalry commander, for the first time and only time in his life, opted for naval warfare. Well, kind of. He selected a group of warriors and had them embark on boats on a nearby river to the Caspian Sea and then landed on the coast side of the stronghold, quickly causing the inhabitants to surrender. However, Timur, so irritated at having to spend so much time and resources on this little stronghold, accepted the surrender, but then, of course, followed with a general massacre. The message was resoundingly clear. No obstacle, big or small, would be allowed to stand in the way of his rule. In 1393, after having wintered in Mazandaran, Timur took his army up north to stomp all over Georgia again, where seeds of rebellion were being sowed. And after quickly quelling that uprising, Timur swiftly changed course, driving his army south with the intended objective of the city of Shiraz, the stronghold of the Musafarid dynasty. En route to Shiraz, he collected a number of towns and cities who were quick to offer up surrender, although one more notable instance of resistance I just had to include. In May 1393, Timur's army invaded the village of Anjudan, about 300 kilometers southwest of present-day Tehran. The village was prepared for the attack, evidenced by its fortress and system of tunnels underneath to help protect its warriors. Undeterred and not to be bothered with offering battle, Timur came up with a different solution. He ordered his soldiers to divert a river overhead, channeling it to the city and flooding the tunnels, drowning many of the defenders in the process, after which the village wisely capitulated, although they obviously didn't have much choice in the matter. After this event, as Timur and his army neared Shiraz, Mansur Muzaffarid managed to put together a defensive force to meet Timur in the field. However, they were quickly defeated, with Mansur himself being killed in single combat by none other than Timur's youngest son, Shah Rukh. Timur once again entered the city of Shiraz, 
which was no longer offering any semblance of resistance, but Timur's anger was not appeased. So he proceeded to have his soldiers hunt down and execute the remaining members of the Musafarid family, ending their dynasty forever. That September, having completed the resubjugation of the previous Persian conquests, Timur's hungry gaze looked towards new opportunities to expand his empire, making a 1,000-kilometer march from Shiraz northwest to Baghdad. Timur led his army completely unopposed to Baghdad, who offered no resistance whatsoever, thanks to Sultan Ahmed, who once again fled the city instead of giving battle. This, of course, being the same Sultan Ahmed that previously fled Tabriz when Timur had arrived back in episode 3. Ahmed fled south to the powerful Mamluk Sultanate, arriving at Sultan Barkuk's court in Egypt, who received him with honor and vowed to protect him. When Timur sent ambassadors to Barkuk demanding Ahmed's return, Barkuk in response had the envoy executed, an insult that Timur noted and vowed that would be dealt with in due course. Timur remained in Baghdad over the winter, during which his spies and informants brought disturbing news. One, that Toktamish was back in play. He had been busy after his devastating loss at the Battle of the Kandercha River, rebuilding his army and had begun incursions south from the Golden Horde lands into Georgia, now under Timur's rule. Not only that, being that Toktamish had also established an alliance with the Mamluk Sultan against Timur. It was really a tenuous position for Timur, camped in a newly conquered city, therefore stocked full of those ready to rise against the Tatars, with Toktamish's army to the north and Burkuk's army to the south. To await the arrival of these united forces to his position would have been ruinous. So instead, early in 1394, Timur took his army north determined to put an end to Toktamish, once and for all, but for real this time. Timur and his army covered the 1,200-kilometer trek back to Georgia in record time. And upon entering the area, they learned that Toktamish had assaulted the city of Derbent in modern-day Russia, just northwest of Timur's position. Of note is that during this time, in Timur's absence back in Baghdad, Sultan Barkuk had gathered his army and marched north, taking Baghdad and reinstalling Sultan Ahmed into his leadership position. Early in 1395, Timur set off with his 120,000 horsemen in pursuit of Toktamish, his scouts leading him to what is now Grozny, in the capital of Chechnya, Russia where they found Toktamish and his 130,000 army awaiting their arrival. Knowing that Timur and his contingent were en route, while waiting, Toktamish focused on finding the most advantageous ground to make their stand and set them up for success. This taking the form of the Terek River, wherein Toktamish and his army forded the river taking up a strong defensible position on the northern bank, 
while also reinforcing the passable spots with wooden barricades. When Timur arrived in the area, seeing the Golden Horde army from the southern bank, he realized that a frontal assault while crossing the river would be a death sentence. Instead, he started marching his army upstream, looking for a more advantageous crossing. However, Tokhtamish mirrored his movements on the northern bank. This shadowing continued on for three days, with Tokhtamish blocking Timur's passage, unwilling to give up the strategic benefit that would allow him to win the day and exact retribution on Timur for the costly defeat that had occurred previously during the Battle of the Kundurcha River. The wily Timur, realizing that this would continue ad nauseum, reached into his bag of tricks to break the stalemate. On the third night, he had his camp followers, thousands of women and servants, put on helmets and armor and mount the spare horses and maintain their position in the encampment. While his soldiers slipped away under the cover of darkness, to a more affordable passage that while still barricaded was only lightly defended now with the bulk of the Golden Horde army still upriver and Timur's forces were easily able to break through leading shortly thereafter to the two massive armies facing off against one another but now on equal footing on the northern bank of the Tirik River Tokhtamish commenced the action with a strong left-wing attack that got the better of the two groups, forcing Timur to send a portion of his reserve to reinforce his flailing right. This action prevented a rout, allowing Timur to stabilize his right wing and push back on the Golden Horde's initial dizzying assault. The initial day of battle ending and not going terribly well for Timur although he was able to stave off a disaster. But Timur, the clever tactician, knew that there was more than one way to better his odds of success. That night, he sent an envoy to one of the key tribal generals fighting under Tokhtamish, promising riches if he would leave the field, with the bribe being accepted. Tokhtamish was woke up early the next day to learn that some of his troops on his left wing had evaporated Although the writing was on the wall, the day had not been lost. So when the armies lined up the following morning, Tokhtamish ordered a desperate all-out assault, left, center, and right wings crashing into Timur's army. But Tokhtamish's reduced left wing as a result of the desertions from the previous night was the opportunity that Timur exploited, pressed upon, and ultimately decimated which freed them up to flank Tokhtamish's remaining forces that were busy engaging in the attack, wherein they fell like dominoes, one by one. Tokhtamish, his forces getting eviscerated in the process, all around him, resulted in him fleeing the field. In the end, the casualties in this battle had been significant. While Timur's losses were approximately 15,000, the Golden Horde ended up losing approximately a third of their overall numbers, with 30 to 40,000 of their horsemen laying dead on the battlefield. Desperate to put an end to Tokhtamish and eliminate this threat to Timur's kingdom for good, 
Timur sent out hunting parties in pursuit of this elusive nemesis. This desperate search, however, proved fruitless, and Tokhtamish was able to escape, disappearing into the Ukrainian steppe. Timur knew that this thorn in his side, while stopped for now, would not settle until he had raised yet another army and threatened Timur's kingdom again. So if he could not end the Tokhtamish threat directly, Timur drew up other plans to dislodge or proactively prevent Tokhtamish from drumming up meaningful support. Would the Golden Horde army vanquish for now? Instead of heading back south to deal with the Mameluk Sultanate, Timur decided to take his army further north, into the heart of the Golden Horde lands, and plunder its principal cities, destroying their ability to rearm and renew hostilities. Laying waste to its capital city Sarai, just east of modern-day Volgograd, Russia, previously known as Stalingrad, and also the city of Tana, around 500 kilometers southwest of Volgograd. These actions not only inhibited the potential to rearm and repopulate the Golden Horde army, but they also served another beneficial purpose, in that these cities were important commercial trading centers, part of the Silk Road, and they were essentially erased from the map, driving all the trade activity south into cities within Timur's realm, helping to fill his coffers and strengthen his position in the region to the detriment of others. Lastly, Timur then installed a new Khan of the Golden Horde, equipping and setting him up to insulate them from Tokhtamish again retaking power. Now, as far as Tokhtamish's fate, he was unable to regain and restore his power and prestige, and ended up taking refuge in Lithuania, at the court of the Grand Duke Vitautas. Tokhtamish committed himself and his remaining meager forces to the Grand Duke, with future promises of the Grand Duke in turn helping him to recover his leadership of the Golden Horde. However, this never came to fruition. Vitautas and Tokhtamish were defeated in battle in 1399 by the new leader of the Golden Horde. And while Tokhtamish, ever the survivor, was able to escape yet again into Siberia, he was finally captured and killed there in 1406. Let's return to Timur's story. In 1396, Timur led his army back to Samarkand to great fanfare, accompanied with carts upon carts laden with treasure and riches. The capital of his kingdom received their great emir with tremendous accolades after their four-year absence, including sumptuous feasting and celebrations that continued at length. This marked the beginning of a rare two-year stint during which Timur remained in Samarkand, focusing on building and beautifying his capital, endeavoring to make it the pearl of the east and leave his lasting mark on the city. The intention was simple, really meant to be a symbol of power and prestige, a monument to Timur and his empire, Samarkand and its surrounding cities as a source of awe, unrivaled versus anything any visitors to the city would have experienced in their lifetime. During this time, exquisite mosques and decadent palaces were erected in Samarkand, Bukhara and Kesh. Beautiful gardens and orchards surrounding these buildings marble transported from Azerbaijan, 
and porcelain imported from faraway lands as far as China. For a while, Timur was fully immersed into his vast building projects, but after a time, his never-ending appetite for conquest resurfaced. Now looking southwards, towards the legendary riches that India promised, and more specifically the ancient city of Delhi, which had been continuously inhabited since the 6th century BC. Now, the pretext for this invasion was filled with religious overtones, endeavoring to further solidify his status as a warrior of Islam, seeking to fight against the non-believers. In this instance, against the Hindus in northern India, raising propaganda to suggest that they were oppressing the Muslims that lived in the region. As the sword of Islam, it was his duty to intervene. In reality, however, Delhi was seemingly ripe for conquest and presented an opportunity for untold riches and power that Timur would not ignore. In the years leading up to this point, Northern India had been immersed in civil wars and discord, wherein Delhi had seen various rulers taking up the mantle of leadership for short periods of time before being toppled by other ambitious nobles. All of this creating a weak and factionalized state, the perfect type of opportunity for Timur to exploit. In 1397, Timur commanded his grandson, Pierre Mohammed, who had been stationed in southeastern Khorasan, to invade India and establish a staging point for their eventual assault on Delhi. Pierre Mohammed crossed the Indus River with an army of around 30,000 soldiers and took the city of Multan in modern-day eastern Pakistan, but not risking any further actions so as to not deplete his forces. By this time, seeing the storm on the horizon, Sultan Mahmud of Delhi had managed to cobble together a pretty impressive army, showing that despite the Delhi Sultanate being in a weakened state, they were still a force to be reckoned with. In the same breath, however, Mahmud did not attempt to push Pir Mohammed out of Multan either, knowing that such an action would also cost him dearly, and he had to have guessed that Timur meant to send another army at some point. And that's exactly what happened. Because, in the spring of 1398, Timur himself led an army of 62,000 towards India. Navigating the treacherous passes of the Hindu Kush mountains, a march wherein horsemen were forced into becoming mountaineers to make it through the backbone of the earth. That September, Timur and his army made it into India, crossing the Indus River, and immediately made for the city of Tulamba. Timur brutally sacked the city and took scores of slaves, daring Mahmud to take action and lure him into a pitched battle away from the fortifications of Delhi. But Sultan Mahmud did not take the bait. Timur then marched south to Multan, uniting with Pir Mohammed and culminating in a 92,000 strong army. Then they undertook a direct path towards Delhi, meeting some resistance along the way, but dealing with this quite readily. In December of that year, Timur finally arrived in the region of Delhi, landing upon Sultan Mahmud's vast army which consisted of around 10,000 cavalry, 40,000 foot, and 125 war elephants, 
arrayed and ready to ward off the invading Tatars. At this point, another instance of Timur's infamy was revealed, catalyzed by the excitement buzzing within the ranks of the estimated 100,000 captives that they had picked up en route to Delhi. Learning of the impressive army of the Delhi Sultanate intent on stopping Timur, the captives began to show signs of potentially uprising and, and lending to the strength of the defending army. So not one to leave anything to chance. Timur ordered the 100,000 captives executed in cold blood. On December 17, 1398, the battle for Delhi took place. Timur, with his horsemen behind him, surveyed Mahmud's army, readily spotting the contingent of war elephants at the vanguard of their army. Certainly hard to miss, these magnificent beasts were armored with chainmail, fortifications on top of each one housing archers and tusks laden with poison. Essentially, battle tanks of the era and unlike anything the Tartars had ever encountered before. Timur initiated the battle, ordering his left and right wings to begin harassing Mahmud's cavalry that were also situated on the left and right wings of his army. In response, Mahmud ordered the center to move forward, his war elephants leading the charge to trample Timur's vanguard. Exactly what Timur had wanted. When the battle tank elephants charged, Timur unleashed his secret weapon. Flaming camels. Yes, literally flaming camels. Knowing that his horses would scatter upon seeing the lumbering beasts bearing down on them, carrying his soldiers away and, and causing mass confusion among his ranks, Timur had prepared for this by loading up hundreds of camels with as much hay and wood as they could carry. When the elephants charged, he had his troops set the hay stacked on the camels aflame, then poking them with red-hot irons, sending the animals howling in pain and running towards the charging elephants. While the poor camels probably took exception to this tactic, it was a stroke of genius. Upon seeing the wave of flaming camels shrieking in pain, running in a frenzy towards them, the elephants panicked. And despite the drivers attempting to keep them under control, the huge animals turned and stampeded back towards their own soldiers, wreaking havoc and trampling their own lines. Taking advantage of the mass disorganization within their lines, Timur then pressed the attack, having the center charge forward to finish off the Indian defenders. In the meanwhile, Timur's left and right wings had managed to completely eviscerate Mahmud's cavalry wings, and when done there, flanked Sultan Mahmud's remaining soldiers to a devastating effect. By the time night came on, Mahmud was left with only a small remnant of his army, but managed to scramble back to the city. Timur was a little concerned about pursuing them into Delhi, as the twisting maze of tight city streets at night would certainly not be friendly to his troops. He ordered his army to relinquish their pursuit and head back to their encampment outside of the city, awaiting daybreak to reassess the situation and determine their next steps. That night, Mahmud fled the city, knowing that Timur would stop at nothing until he had taken the city, and was concerned that this would have also resulted in his untimely death, leaving those remaining in Delhi with the distasteful task of having to entertain their new conquerors the following morning. 
Those remaining in Delhi were aware that they did not nearly have enough troops to give them a chance of defending the city. They sent an envoy to Timur begging forgiveness and offering up the unconditional surrender of one of the richest cities in the world. Timur accepted the surrender and chose not to massacre the citizenry, instead keeping his actions to a systematic plundering of the city, filling his carts with unparalleled riches. This continued on for two full days. However, on the third day, fed up with the invaders picking their city clean of all its riches, the citizens of Delhi organized a resistance and attacked Timur's troops. Now, rumors of Timur's wrath must have been known at least by some, but they unfortunately, through this action, experienced the horror firsthand. Timur unleashed his troops to devastate the city, burning and killing with reckless abandon. The only structures remaining being thousands of severed heads heaped into mountains throughout the city, which was proving to become one of Timur's calling cards of sorts. The pillaging was so devastating and so complete that, in the years that followed, it took almost a century for Delhi to recover from this cataclysmic event. In early 1399, Timur returned to Samarkand in triumph, with an almost never-ending baggage train falling behind with untold riches, slaves, and 90 elephants dragging marble behind them, which bankrolled his most monumental building project to date commissioning the construction of the Bibi Hainum Mosque that still stands today in Samarkand, Uzbekistan. A truly magnificent building that I have an image of on my website in case you're interested. Timur did not remain in Samarkand long because there were a number of issues demanding his attention westwards. Firstly, his third eldest son, Miran Shah, since roughly 1393, he had been issued northern Persia and the southern Caucasus as his domain, including the cities of Baghdad, Tabriz, and Sultania, ruling in Timur's name. And for all intensive purposes, Miranshah had done a pretty admirable job at keeping these areas under firm reign, at least initially. Because several years prior to that point, Miranshah struck his head as a result from a fall from his horse, which began to evolve into mental health issues, resulting in increasingly destructive and hedonistic behaviors. Timur knew he had to deal with this, lest Miranshah's antics give rise to more and more rebellions, which had actually already begun with Georgia rebelling against Miranshah's erratic rule. Secondly, one of Timur's most prominent remaining enemies, Sultan Barkuk, the Mamluk ruler of Egypt and Syria, had died, now replaced by his 10-year-old son, Sultan Faraj. Barkuk had been the primary cause of Baghdad being retaken, reinstalling Sultan Ahmed back into power, and had also secured an alliance, not only with Toktamash, who Timur had previously dealt with, but also with Sultan Bayezid of the Ottomans, who were both wary of Timur's ongoing imperialistic actions. This regime change, with all the discord that typically arose during these uncertain times, presented a good opportunity for Timur to exploit and exact revenge. And last, but certainly not least, 
Sultan Bayezid, known as the Thunderbolt, at the head of the surging Ottoman Empire. Timur and Bayezid's realms were bordering each other now, and the land disputes on these uncomfortably close dominions were eroding into an increasingly eminent situation. Now, Timur's stated motivation for attacking Bayezid and the Ottoman Empire was the restoration of the Seljuk Authority, the Turco-Persian Sunni Muslim Empire that had previously controlled the region. Timur saw the Seljuks as the rightful rulers of Anatolia, being that they had been granted this rule by Mongol conquerors, again illustrating Timur's interest with Genghisid legitimacy, or at least using this when convenient to justify an attack. As a quick side note, I've come to learn that I've been mispronouncing Genghis Khan's name incorrectly using Genghis, so going forward I'll make sure to use Genghis from now on. Of course, the Ottomans scoffed at this notion of bringing back the Seljuk authority. And over the past years, Timur and Bayezid had been increasingly exchanging letters, which was quickly becoming a sour relationship, with each prominent ruler repeatedly insulting and threatening the other, gearing up towards an epic battle that would also mark the pinnacle of Timur's career. In the next and final episode covering Amir Timur, we will learn more about his twilight years, commencing with Timur's incursions into the Mamluk Sultanate lands in the Levant or modern-day Syria, followed by an epic battle with the lone remaining superpower in the region, the Ottoman Empire led by Sultan Bayezid I, the Thunderbolt, with Timur reaching his pinnacle of power in the farthest extent of the Timurid Empire. Then, we'll learn more about what happened in the years right after his death, who took control of the reins of the Timurid Empire, and then we'll review his broader legacy, how he left his lasting marks on the world, the ripples of his actions that cascaded into historical waves, and much, much more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. I would certainly appreciate a five-star rating if you found this episode informative or entertaining. And lastly, you can head over on to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info like maps and images pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure. And where, if you are so inclined, you can also sponsor the show directly, with 10% of the monthly listener contributions going towards charitable causes, namely providing equipment, resources, and training towards sustainable agricultural practices in developing countries. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from audionautics.com. Additional sound effects from zapsplat.com. <laughs>